Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome to the Bible Line. For the next hour, we'll be taking questions that you may have as it relates to the study of God's Word or some personal challenge you're facing in your life, family, or ministry. And so if we can help you, the number again locally is area code 843-525-1859, 525-1859. In addition, there's a toll-free number for our internet listeners and those outside the state of South Carolina. If you'd like to use that number, it's 877, the call letters of our station, WAGP 980, 877-WAGP 980, or you can uh, text or email us here directly into the studio at TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net, and it comes up your question on the screen in front of us. Uh, Some people call, want to go on the air live. We always give preference to live callers. A lot of people call and just dictate their questions, and we're happy to receive them in that fashion as well. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor. I see the phone lines already ringing, so we'll see if anybody is brave enough to uh, step up, and they are indeed to a live call. Let's go to them right now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Uh, Good morning, uh, Pastor Rudy. Hey, um, Daniel, the book of Daniel, there's three things that uh, kind of caught my mind. Not only the, the four empires that are prophetically uh, expressed in the book, but there was a passage, I think it was in uh, chapter 8 or 7, I can't remember exactly which one it was, but it had to refer to the uh, uh, the goats and the ram. Could you explain that as well as maybe what they meant by I know evangelically, mainstream uh, Christianity, we've also talked about the, the third person in the fire of Daniel, Daniel 6, chapter 6. I, I think all three have something to do with each other. Um, can you better explain that to me? Because I'm having a hard time. All right, great question. Let me see if I can respond. Uh, the book of Daniel is a critical, critical letter and book historically. Uh, to understanding the book of Revelation. Uh, I think in many ways the key to understanding Revelation is is to understand the book of Daniel, and it really gives us a picture, this particular um, book written by the prophet about six centuries before Christ. Uh, Your your liberal scholars want to uh, date it uh, much later. They make uh, Daniel an historian and not a prophet. Jesus referred to him as a prophet, and unfortunately, um, it's those liberal critics who try to attack the prophetic nature of God's word that convince some unsuspecting souls that the Bible is not inspired. It's purely uh, written by human authors. The, the wonder of it all, though, is that 
when you come to the book of Daniel, even the most liberal of scholars will typically date it 200 to 250 years before Christ. And they would say, well, you see, he's writing historically. But what's very interesting is that a lot of the prophecies in the 11th chapter are actually fulfilled during the time frame between 250 B.C. and before the coming of the Lord Jesus. And uh, they miss that, but it becomes, again, a a short-term prophecy affirming the long-term prophecies that are made. But Jesus didn't view Daniel as a historian, but as a prophet. That's how he describes him in the Olivet Discourse. And uh, in a number of places, three different places in the book of Daniel, he describes the progression of different empires. And in the seventh chapter, he deals with the vision of four beasts. And uh, Daniel says, I was looking in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven and stirring up the great sea and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion. It had wings of an eagle. Uh, The second uh, kept this up. The second excuse me, in the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until the wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made it to stand on two feet like a man, a human man who was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said, arise, devour such meat. And And after this, I kept looking and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, devoured and crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horn, behold, another horn, a little one, came up, Uh, among them and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots and so on so you've got these uh different images and visions that are given in the book of daniel to the prophet and they represent the great empires of the world daniel 2 for instance he's already described the rise of babylon and the medio persia and greek empire and rome and and then even here in the seventh chapter he describes this final empire that is seemingly revived Uh, that is different from all the others that have preceded it in Daniel's visions. Uh, And he's used different ways in which to describe uh, these different empires that rise, but he definitely highlights and underscores that this final empire is different from all the ones before it, and that it has ten toes, and out of these ten toes that represent ten kings, there will come one who will take precedent over them all. And, of course, it becomes a picture of Antichrist. And and so what follows here in the seventh chapter is the Ancient of Days who reigns and the Son of Man who's presented and sovereignly rules over the kingdoms of the world. And all the Messianic promises are fulfilled. So this chapter 7 that you mentioned here is a really important chapter because it, it gives us a... Um, a picture beginning with the time of the Gentiles where Babylon through Nebuchadnezzar conquers um, uh, Israel and and carries them away into captivity all the way through the Messianic reign of Messiah. I don't think that there's any connection at all between the empires that John uh, that Daniel records in, in a number of different places in what took place in Daniel chapter 6 where you have uh, the men who are in the fiery furnace. Um, there is some question sometime, and you, you raise it in terms of uh, 
what what this fourth who this fourth individual is um and how we should understand um you know uh them in the fiery furnace back here in the uh, Daniel 6 I'm I'm going back here to to earlier in the book of Daniel when they're in the fiery furnace I, I don't think that this is um an easy passage to necessarily interpret uh, I don't think it's an impossible passage, though, to interpret. Let me just uh, turn there for a moment. And uh, he makes this statement, they're in the fiery furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar the king is astonished, and he stoods up in haste, and he says, was there not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said, certainly, O king. And he answered and said, look, I see four men loosed, walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods, is the way the New American Standard uh, renders the Hebrew text. If you're using the old King James, it says uh, the son of God. In fact, they capitalize the English and uh, make it possibly a reference to Messiah himself. Well, obviously, the Lord Jesus had not incarnated himself, and literally, it's sons uh, like a sons of the gods, uh, literally, it is plural. Uh, the <clears throat> the um, King James is somewhat interpretive there, but I think correctly so. I think this is probably one of the pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord Jesus as the angel of the Lord. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar, being the pagan that he is, has no other way to describe him but to use the terminology that he uses. Uh, I think the King James is a little more interpretive here than uh actually literally translating it, but I think their interpretation is correct, that it is indeed uh, Messiah, not obviously the Lord Jesus uh, in his uh, Bethlehem body, but in one of his pre-incarnate appearances of the angel of the Lord. It's possible we'll get to heaven and find out, well, this is just another angel that came as a helper in which to serve these men. That's very possible, but I think more than likely because of the supernatural expression that is given here, it's consistent with all of the other appearances of the angel of Yahweh, and it's probably the Lord himself uh, here again in one of his pre-incarnate appearances of the Old Testament. Interesting passage, but it has no connection whatsoever Daniel 3 with the men in the fiery furnace to the various uh, empires of the world. Let's go to the next question. All right. Very good. We've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Pastor Carl, how are you this morning? Doing well. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much for your radio ministry. Uh, You've done the book of Genesis. Since that has been finished... I continue to listen to it on the radio daily. It's about two, three times a day you're on radio. And it is such a blessing because I go over what you've already preached on Sundays and recall what has been said, and I'm taking notes and listening to it, and I get a lot out of it. Thank you so much for Genesis. Well, thank you for your encouragement. I hope it's a continued encouragement in your walk with the Lord. Thank you, sir. On um, Second Kings, the second chapter, Elisha, um, that's the 23rd verse. Can you please explain what happened with Elijah and the youth that teased or mocked him 
and the bears came out of the woods and mauled these young men. Yeah, I love I, this passage. Just when people talk about me losing my hair, I remind them of this one. <laughs> I, I was unable to find any more information on that. And Pastor Carl, I'd like you to explain that for me, please, sir. Yeah, um, let, me, let me just read it. Not everyone's familiar with the passage of Scripture. At this point, uh, Elijah has uh, anointed Elisha as the prophet who will take his place, as God prophesied earlier in First Kings, I think it was the 19th chapter, that that would happen. And it's being fulfilled, and he begins to carry on the ministry of Elijah as God uh, passes the mantle of his power to Elisha. Then he went up from there to Bethel, the house of God, and he was going up by the way. Young lads came out from the city. Um, Interestingly, uh, the the Hebrew word that is used for young lads is typically used of people who are in the age of 10 to 13 years of age, even to this day. The young lads came out from the city and mocked him and said to him, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. Hmm. Well, you know, Elijah, Elisha, uh, you know, like they say, all good men fall out at the top. And indeed he did. He was bald and they made fun of him. And when he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 40 lads of their number. And he went up from there to Mount Carmel. And from there he returned to Samaria. Now these young lads, no doubt, uh, representing, you know, their parents' beliefs expressed uh, contempt uh, for the prophet of God, hostility towards him as the representative of, of Yahweh. They knew what they were doing, and so God dealt with them uh, very, very specifically, and um, he has them devoured. Um, and it's really a warning that comes from the book of Leviticus chapter 26. Let me turn there for just a second to Leviticus 26. It says in verse 22, I will let loose among you the beasts of the field, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your cattle, reduce your number so that your roads lie deserted. In Leviticus 26, God gives a number of penalties for disobedience. This is very, very similar, by the way, to the blessings and cursings of the Mosaic Covenant that's found later on in the book of Deuteronomy towards the end, chapter 29. And so what God warned his people was, listen, if you ignore my covenant that I've made with you, there are consequences, not just for you, but for your children as well. And so here's the case of these children who are no doubt accountable before the Lord. Again, if this Hebrew word is is used, uh, even to this day, is used to refer to young lads, you know, 10, 12, 13 years of age, uh, then indeed God viewed these kids as accountable, and he held them accountable for their actions. They come, and instead of revering the man of God, they mock the man of God. And God brings immediate judgment. And it's very interesting because, again, In Leviticus, that verse I just read, God prophesied that sometimes he would use even wild beasts to accomplish it. And that's precisely what he does here in Kings through Elisha the prophet. And they're devoured. So it's a a warning. It's a fulfillment. um, And it's re-expressed not just in this passage, but in many other passages. I mean, God, when God's men are mocked, God doesn't take it lightly. 
Uh, he deals with people. And so when there's a man of God, you don't lightly mock him, make fun of him, slander him. Uh, God can bring his discipline. In this point, he brought death uh, because, again, the greater the revelation, the greater the responsibility. Elisha was no uh, ordinary guy. I mean, he was in the sense that, like Elijah, as James affirms, he's made out of the same tissue of life that we're made out of, the same nature we have. But still, he falls in that time frame in human history where God is doing the supernatural. And certainly, there's only... um, the great turning points of biblical history where God does the supernatural. Moses, Joshua, hundreds of years ago by Elijah, Elisha, hundreds of years ago by the Christ and the apostles. Who knows how many years will go by. The next time frame of the supernatural, miraculous, done through individuals will be in the time of the great tribulation. So there was great, great super revelation to whom much is given, much is expected. And God expected them to turn and revere the man of God. They didn't. They embraced the beliefs of their parents, and God judged them. Uh, sobering text of Scripture. Let's go to the next question. I think someone's waiting online. All right. Indeed, we do have another caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, my question is, Pastor, recently I was reading Job in my personal study. Yes. And when I got from it, when I, especially when I got to the last chapters, was that when God corrected Job's friend and corrected Job's theology about how they perceive God. Yes. And my, when I got from that, is that God is not beholden to anyone, meaning he's not obligated to compensate us for our perceived righteousness. Now, I say that to say this, and you can correct me with that in a couple of minutes. I say that to say this. Recently in our Bible study, we were studying Proverbs, and when we came to Proverbs 3, 9, I made the, the comment that uh, when it says, honor, your Lord, honor the Lord from your possessions, and with the first fruit, first fruit of all your increase, so your bonds will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with wine. And I made the comment, because of what I understood from Job, that, that these verses must be spoken, or must be taken generally. I mean... God is not obligated to bless us for our righteousness, you know, what we do. And I, and I say that to say this, because as you probably know, a lot of people who you preach that uh, prosperity gospel, uh, prosperity theology, they use verses like this to say, you know, you do this, then God will do this. You do this, then God will do this. Now, was I wrong in connecting those two? Uh, and I'll just... Uh, I'll just stay on the line and just, I'll, I'll just listen to you. Yeah, stay on the line, and uh, you can ask a follow-up if you'd like. Um, again, context is everything. And if you remember the, the B'nai Elohim, literally the sons of God come and they appear before the Lord God with Satan. And basically, if you remember earlier in Job, the, the argument that Satan uses before God is the only reason Job obeys you, Lord, and follows you is because you've bought him. You've blessed him. Take away the blessing and we'll see if he really, truly loves you. And, of course, God does that piece by piece, inch by inch, and he still follows the Lord. The Lord gave, the Lord took, blessed be the name of the Lord. And he's a righteous man, and he continues in that righteousness. Job's friends assume, well, listen, the reason you are being you know, punished is because you're really not righteous. You're a wicked person. And what is interesting, and you raise a good point, is I've heard a number of these guys on television actually use verses from Job's friends to teach prosperity theology. 
Um, certainly they use other passages, but they will use very often the quotations from Job's friends to say, hey, listen, if you do such and such, God will bless you and so on. Of course, when God gives an assessment of their theology, when you come to uh, chapter what is it, uh, 30, uh, let me go right here to the end. Yeah, here it is, right at the end of the book. Um, God says in chapter 42, and it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends. Why? Because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So when God gives an assessment of their theology here in the last chapter of Job, the 42nd chapter, God says, look, your theology stinks. And I think he'd say the same thing today with a lot of prosperity guys who quote Eliphaz and his friends. Now, again, when you connect uh, Proverbs 3, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of your produce so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. God is stating a general principle. I mean, it is taught in the word of God that when we prioritize the Lord God, he, as a general principle, will bless us. I mean, God says, test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up for you the windows of heaven until you know you can't even contain the blessing that I'm going to pour upon you. As he challenges the Jewish people of the Old Testament to give of their tithes and their offerings. Does that mean that we give to get? Certainly not. Uh, Does that mean that God will make us rich? Certainly not. Again, Scripture must interpret Scripture. But to understand that the blessings that God gives are not simply material in nature. Under the new covenant, the emphasis is not on the material, but on the spiritual. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1. Not to mention that Jesus taught in our giving that we're not uh, necessarily laying up treasure on earth. We're laying up treasure in heaven. Um, you know, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. That's a general principle that's taught under the new covenant. And so when we give to the Lord God, we are laying up treasure in heaven. And so, um, you know, you've got guys like Paul who are in the center of God's will. And he said, listen, I know what it was like to have plenty. And I know what it was like to be hungry. Oh, wait a minute. You, you knew a time in your life, Paul, when it, when it was what it was like to be hungry. I, I thought you gave to the Lord. Why wasn't he blessing you? Well, God was, and and sometimes even in hardship, it's a fresh reminder of the many expressions of God's goodness to us. You know, sometimes uh, we're so overwhelmed, especially in nations like our own that, you know, have approximately 6% of the world's population, but 60% of the world's wealth, and we have so much, we forget the the source. We forget the blesser who has blessed us. So in either case, um, no, I think you handled the text correctly, that God is giving a general principle there. But it is a principle that we we don't ignore, we don't dismiss. But neither is it a a hard, fast promise that, you know, God's going to make you wealthy, but he will meet your needs. He promises to do that. God does promise to meet our needs. Uh, Jesus said when you're concerned and consumed about, you know, where you're going to get the next set of clothes for your back or the food on the table, he said, look, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and everything else will be added to you. Uh, But look, sometimes too, people die. They die through disease. They die through poverty. They die through death. I mean, hunger, it happens even amongst the people of God. Does that help listener? 
Thank you, and I appreciate it because I almost got stoned when I, I mentioned it in my sentence. <laughs> you know, I want you to know also, I'm all, you guys are always in my prayers, you know, especially the, you know, this, uh, your radio, your radio broadcast, you know, well, all the great teachers that you have coming on there. Well, thanks. Thank you again. Thank you for calling. Thanks for your encouragement. All right, very good. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at wagp.net. Uh, as this person has in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 32, it speaks about adultery. If it's adultery for me to look at women in lust, in verse 21, and always remains adultery, then in verse 32, when Jesus says, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery, shouldn't this always be as well? My question is, at what point is it not adultery to marry a divorced woman? Uh, When people get remarried and look at their new marriage as a blessing from the Lord, they seem to assume that it's no longer adultery, but the passage doesn't say that. It says it's adultery. When is it no longer adultery? If this is true and you can remarry uh, and it's not adultery, then should we leave our wives and marry the women we're looking at in lust because then it's no longer adultery? Uh, we'll look at some other verses first but uh, in a minute, but we've got another live caller. We always give live callers preference, so we'll come back to that question in a minute. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Yeah, thanks for calling today. Yes, uh, Brother Carl, I was, when, you, when I read the Bible and I see the uh, uh, number 40, it's talking about 40 days and 40 years that the king served and uh, the 40 years that uh, Moses traveled and what what's the significance of of the forty in the um, in the Bible? Could you tell me that? Well, it is interesting to see the um, repetition of forty that's used in many instances. Uh, you, you mentioned Moses; his life can really be divided into three parts: forty, forty, forty. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years leading the children of Israel there in the in the wilderness. Uh, you know, you got your first three great kings of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon. They each reign exactly 40 years for the first 120 years with the kingdoms uh, united. Uh, there, There is a um, realm of theology called numerology, um, and sometimes people, I think, go a little bit bizarre with those numbers and their meanings. Here's the general principle that I think we need to apply, and it's, and it's, I think, good, sound theology, and I think it's modeled, you know, in the Scripture itself. How do you interpret the Bible? It becomes an issue of the subject of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the study of biblical interpretation. Well, you know, the Reformers and the Church Fathers and others would underscore the principle, and I think it's a legitimate principle to underscore because it's contained within the Bible itself. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. Um, And I say that because when you see the New Testament interacting with the Old Testament, you see um, them using that principle. They're using Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so a a principle of interpretation, how do we approach the scriptures is very, very important here. And people have approached the word of God in a number of different ways. Sometimes they've spiritualized things and they do that today. They say, well, this means this, you know, um, well, in, in, well, on what basis? Well, I, I just think that's what it means. Well, then, then, then we've really stepped over bounds. 
The principle you find in the New Testament with Jesus and the apostles is they literally interpreted the scripture. Now, by a literal interpretation, some prefer to use the phraseology, a historical, grammatical interpretation of the Bible. We're not ignoring figures of speech. We're not ignoring metaphors uh, or the like um, or symbols. But when a symbol is interpreted for us through the scripture, then we say that's what it means. Anywhere in the Bible, anywhere in the Bible is the number 40 interpreted in terms of this is what it represents and this is what it means. And the answer is no. So for me to take the number 40 and say, well, here's what it means is to really go beyond the bounds of Scripture. And when I do that, I misrepresent what God has said, and I'm reading into the Scripture. That's called eisegesis. Exegesis is when you read out what God has plainly said. Eisegesis is when you read into the text something that God has not said. So unless there's a verse of Scripture that gives me permission to say, well, this is what 40 represents, then I am guilty of the same thing that the cults do. Uh, I am guilty of what some of our Pentecostal and charismatic friends have done, where they have revelation that goes beyond the written word of God. And really, when you when you open that door up, there's no end in terms of where you can stop. I mean, you can just run down the road and make it mean whatever you want it to mean. And then it becomes very, very dangerous And we are, in many ways, when we do that, guilty of what God warns not to do at the end of the Revelation, which happens to be the last book God ever wrote uh, before he finished the canon of Scripture. And he told us not to add to the Scripture and certainly not to subtract. So if there were a verse of Scripture that says, this is what 40 means, and I would have a definitive uh, answer to give you, but there's not. And so I can't and I won't. And uh, so I hope that helps. All right. Thank you, caller. All right. Getting back to that. Uh, yeah, other the caller. Matthew uh, question yeah, in terms the of. Uh, upshot of all of this is he's struggling. He's a pastor. He's struggling with the fact that he has to counsel people that uh, it best for, it's best for them to sometimes stay uh, unmarried uh, rather than to remarry. And he's, you know, dealing with that worry about uh, is there a point where if somebody remarries, it is no longer adultery? Yeah, well, he's dealing with texts, and he, he, he references a few here uh, in Matthew, Mark 10, for instance, uh, where the exception clause is not found. Uh, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Okay, pretty plain, straightforward, uh, no exceptions, just flat out said Luke sixteen eighteen as well. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who's divorced from a husband commits adultery. Why does the Lord say that? Because he is affirming that the only thing that can sever a relationship honorably in the Lord is death. And that's why Paul can say in Romans 7, 2 and 3, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then if while her husband is alive, if he's living and she is joined to another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she's joined or married to another man. So death severs the relationship and gives freedom for remarry. And that's why Paul's instruction, the other passage you quoted from 1 Corinthians 7 is uh, totally consistent when he says to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. 
It's very interesting the phraseology he uses, not I, but the Lord. In just a moment, he's going to reverse the phrases. He's going to say to the rest, I say, not the Lord. In other words, in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 12, he's saying, this is not something that Jesus ever addressed, but I'm going to speak on his behalf as an apostle. But it does raise an interesting issue when he says to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. When did Jesus give this instruction? When he spoke on the subject of divorce and remarriage. In passages like Mark 10, Luke 16, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, the four places in the Gospels where it's addressed. And so he says the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, because there are times when it is impossible. Maybe you've got a drug addict, a drunk, a wife beater and so on and so forth. What are your options? Well, to be consistent with Jesus' teachings in the gospel, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So again, the Lord wants us to understand that only death should sever the marriage covenant that is made. Um, Interestingly, in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, where the um, exception clause is given, um, what's interesting in Matthew 5, he says, and I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity, and, and I take it the, the exception clause is found in Matthew because they practice betrothal, and when you were betrothed, you were considered husband and wife. There are four such examples of that in the Old Testament. It's, it, engaged is a weak translation uh, because engagement in our culture is a agreement that could be broken and can be broken honorably in the Lord without uh, violating any biblical principle. But marriage is not the same. Well, betrothal is not engagement, but neither is it fully marriage. Because when a couple was betrothed, and by the way, there is one example in the New Testament of Matthew 1 of Joseph who's betrothed to Mary, and though their relationship had not yet been consummated physically, he's still called the husband of Mary. In fact, betrothal was so binding that you were, uh, the only way to break it was through a certificate of divorce. And so it was an interesting uh, procedure when you think about it. But because it was not uh, consummated, the relationship, because Joseph had not had a physical relationship with Mary, he is assuming the righteous thing to do as a righteous man would be to put her away secretly. And so Jews alone practiced betrothal. Gentiles did not. And that's why there is no exception in Matthew, uh, in Mark or Luke. But what is interesting is that in Matthew 5, where it's mentioned, when you divorce your wife, you make her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. How do you make somebody commit adultery? Well, especially in that culture, a woman, I mean, she was divorced. She was destitute. She was poor, as is becoming fast the track in our own society today. The new poor many times is the single mom who's been dumped by her husband. And uh, you make her commit adultery because she's going to look for security and she's going to get remarried. So the, the bottom line question is if, if only death severs the relationship and remarriage constitutes adultery, are you in a habitual state of adultery? That's really your question. And I would say, and it's, and it's a definitely a difficult question, but I would say no when dealt with honestly before the Lord. Um, interestingly, in John's gospel, when Jesus deals with the woman at the well, he says, look, the guy you're with is not your husband. In fact, you've had five husbands. 
he doesn't say you had one husband. The only marriage God ever looked at as a legitimate marriage was the first, but you've actually had five. Now, again, this is not a basis for divorcing your spouse and saying, well, look, I'm just going to divorce my husband because God will forgive me and he can um, cleanse me and I can have a fresh start. No, this is not a basis for doing that. That would be like a, a woman who's pregnant and her boyfriend says, hey, look, go ahead, just get the abortion. You know God's a faithful, forgiving God. And if you just ask for his forgiveness, he'll forgive you. Can God forgive abortion? Of course, again, he can forgive any sin, all manner of sin, Jesus affirmed when he dealt with blasphemy of the spirit. And we uh, tend to neglect the other half of that uh, statement that he makes. He can forgive any kind of sin, uh, but you don't use that as a basis to presume on the grace of God. I remember a man years ago uh, called me up and said, Pastor, you know, I got married when I was 18, was married for three years. Uh, I was a Christian. My wife was a Christian. I divorced her. I shouldn't have. Uh, yeah, I'd met another woman, was attracted to her, married again. I've been married now for 28 years. I got five kids. I've been studying this thing on divorce. And God says, you know, you divorce your wife, you marry another, you commit adultery. And, you know, well, what should I do? He said, I know I can't go back to my first wife because God says that's an abomination in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, and indeed it is because otherwise you would have basically a, a legal adultery uh, if you could go back. So God says you can't. But should I, you know, get rid of my first wife or what, what do I do? And I just said to him, look, you, you can't unscramble eggs. Uh, you can't undo what you've done in the past. But you can deal with it honestly before the Lord and teach your children that there is no excuse uh, that God's ideal is one man, one woman, till death severs the relationship. That's how the disciples understood it, because Jesus carried it far beyond the school of Hillel Shammai, the two rabbinical schools of the day, and says, here's what God originally intended. And a man leaves his father and mother, cleaves to his wife. The two become one. What God has joined, let no man separate. Um, you know, we we want to get married, and we, we come to the church because we know God has something to do with it, but we want a divorce. We don't come to God. We go to the judge. Look, what God has joined, let no one separate. We need to teach the ideal. And I think the disciples understood it because their reaction was, whoa, if this is the way it is, uh, maybe it's never better never to get married. Uh, and that was not the Lord's intention. But I do think there has to be honesty to others when we deal with our past failure. And there has to be honesty with ourselves for that cloud to be lifted. And for God's blessing to come upon a second marriage. It's possible. God can bless a second marriage. But again, like with any other sin, it doesn't become, because God can forgive and be gracious, it doesn't become a basis for our practicing sin. And I've seen people do this. And sometimes you wonder when they turn the grace of God into licentiousness, whether or not they really understand salvation and whether they know Christ. That's someone's driving motivation. They've got good reason to question themselves because God says that's a that's the mark of a false teacher. He tells us in the book of Jude and in the book of Second Peter chapter 2. All right, very good. A couple of weeks ago, you had mentioned, I believe, in one of your messages that everyone should serve in the body of Christ. Now, why would some people not want to serve when they know who it is they're truly serving? Yeah, good question. It seems pretty straightforward to you, and it, and it should seem that way to all of us. But, you know, we can get out of fellowship with God and lose perspective 
Um, you know, that's why God exhorts us to walk in the light as he's in the light. And by nature, we're, we're, we're very selfish and we want our needs met. And, you know, sometimes people don't want to serve the people of God because it's inconvenient or it involves commitment. And, you know, uh, service in any local assembly takes a number of different levels. There's uh, events that happen, you know, maybe quarterly, annually, and very easy to get volunteers for those kinds of events, uh, typically, because they don't require an ongoing commitment. And then there are those weekly kinds of decisions that have to be met, where, you know, somebody is asked to, hey, would you work with uh, three-year-olds, or would you uh, teach high school students, or would you serve as an usher every week, or, you know, would you serve as an information coordinator? We need you there every Sunday. Oh, well, Pastor, you know, good night every week. You know, my wife and I like to travel two or three Sundays a month. And, you know, we, we don't want to be there every week. And, you know, and or you know, they don't want to be inconvenienced. And that's unfortunate. But, again, when you really understand, like you say, who it is that we are serving and what it is that, that he's called us to. Look, any, anything that's worthwhile typically is sacrificial. And so we are to present ourselves to God as a living and holy sacrifice. Look, I understand people may be gone four or five Sundays a year. But, you know, if that's your practice of being gone, then you, you, you've got either a really distorted view of what the local assembly is and how it fits into the larger plan of God or or you're out of fellowship with the Lord. Um, because there's an expectation in the New Testament, as First Peter 4, 9 and 10 teaches, that since I have a gift, I am to employ it in the local assembly in serving other Christians. That involves commitment. That involves uh, time and sacrifice, and that's what God calls us to. All right, we've got another live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Broke. How are you doing? Question. Hey, brother. Good morning. It's Anthony. Yeah, uh, Anthony. You know, Rick just asked, asked a part of my question this time, but I'm going to ask you again. If we are born again, filled with the Spirit of God, love the Lord Jesus Christ with all our heart, and we are serving the Lord Jesus Christ through our local church, we're not serving our pastor, we're not serving the deacons, the elders, we are serving the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Right. Now, but say, for example, I just use me and Rick because me and Rick friends. Me and Rick, I do something to Rick. I can't get along with Rick now. I'm mad with him. Now, I cannot serve because I know my spirit ain't right. Right. But to stay like that, to stay like that, where's the Holy Spirit in this? It has to be a point where uh, you, uh, you've got to feel guilty or feel something that you know is not right and you miss you miss an opportunity to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You know when I stand in the back of that church ushering on Sunday, I think about I'm thinking about it on Thursday and Wednesday before you even get there. Lord, this is another opportunity to serve you. And I believe sometimes we miss opportunities to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. But where's the Holy Spirit in that, where we can get this stuff forgiven, move on, and move back into serving the Lord? That's my question. Well, it's a great question. And again, it's closely related to um, 
the one that uh, it was asked a little bit earlier here. You know, there's a variety of gifts and variety of ministries in the church, and we're all called to serve somewhere. You know, I have to sweat bullets in my study week after week after week, hour after hour after hour, preparing the Word of God. That's one of the areas of my responsibility if I'm going to be a good steward of my gift. Somebody else has the gift of serving, and they're called to you know, serve God's people as an usher, as a greeter, uh, any number of different expressions and gifts and ministries. But we all are to serve in the place at the wall. If we can use the imagery of Nehemiah and the wall, we, we all need to find a place on the wall. And uh, certainly, though, people can get out of fellowship with God. And some people continue to serve, but they serve then in the energy of the flesh. And that's why Paul reminds us that there is coming a day, 1 Corinthians 4 in verse 5, when God will look at why we did what we did. Therefore, don't go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light both the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. I can't judge another man's heart. Only God can do that. Only God ultimately knows why he's doing what he's doing. Now, sometimes they'll tell you why they're doing what they're doing. And you can judge with righteous judgment. And it's not rocket science because they've said it. Um, You know, I remember serving years ago in the nursery at a church I was in. And uh, when I got there, to work with the kids. I was a volunteer in preschool that week. The person who was volunteering with me was miserable, didn't want to be there. You could tell they didn't want to be there. In fact, she said she didn't want to be there. Now, we both spent the same hour serving those kids, doing all the things that you do with four- and five-year-olds. And uh, at the end of the hour, you know, God evaluates our service. And if I serve the Lord in the energy of the flesh— And out of fellowship with God, I may go through the activities and, you know, dish out the animal crackers and do the craft and try to teach a Bible lesson. But it's wood, hay, and stubble at the judgment seat of Christ. So God looks not just at uh, what we're doing, but the quality of every man's work. As Paul addresses pastors in 1 Corinthians 3, he's reminding them, look, you're either using good building materials, namely the Word of God, or you're using something else to build God's church. And so he likens the result of being gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. And a day is coming when God is going to test the quality of every man's work. Now, the context there is in reference to pastors and what tools they're using to build God's church. But you can certainly apply it beyond that because passages like Romans 14 and verse 12 says, So then each one of us must give an account of himself to the Lord. So how do you fix it? Well, you know, there's uh, four commands in the Word of God that relate the believer's responsibility to the Holy Spirit. Grieve not the Spirit, quench not the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, and so do the Spirit. We're to be Spirit-filled people. We grieve the Spirit when we do those things we shouldn't do. The solution to fixing that is to confess known sin. 1 John 1, 9. We quench the Spirit when we're unwilling to do those things that we ought to do. It deals more in the positive realm, as taught in 1 Thessalonians 5. And um, so we need to yield every year of our life to the Lord. Some Christians aren't Spirit-filled, not because of what they're doing bad, but because of what they're refusing to do in terms of good. And so they're hindering God's spirit and his work in their life. We're to walk by the spirit. We, we walk with a sense of dependency and we sow to the spirit because the, the spirit doesn't operate in our life in a vacuum. He operates in conjunction with the word of God he has written. 
And so we feed on the word of God that we might understand the will of God and depend upon the spirit of God to flesh it out as we're clean, yielded people. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got another uh, listener that's uh, on the line here. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, Good morning, Pastor Brody. Thank you for taking my call. Thanks for calling today. I uh, heard someone mention this, and I also read about this in a book, uh, where a person, they were, and you might have mentioned this as well, but they were saying that the term or the, the title Christian was actually given to believers uh, uh, because of the way they followed Christ. And, and this person uh, went on to say that to be a Christian means to be a Christ follower or a follower of Christ. And the person in the book also went on to say that there's a difference between being born again and being a child of God and actually being a Christian. In other words, I guess what he was saying is that you could be born again, be a child of God, but if you're not following Christ, if you're not serving him, or if you're you're backslidden or whatever, that you really can't be called a Christian. Uh, I was wondering what you, you thought of that. Yeah, I think hermeneutically, in terms of, again, the principles of interpretation that I'm applying, that that would really be a stretch. It is true in Acts 11, um, it tells us, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution, uh, the persecution that was in connection with Stephen on the day he died, Acts 8.1 says the the church was scattered into uh, Samaria and Judea, just as Jesus had prophesied in Acts 1 and verse 8. Um, it says when that happened, it says some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, Jewish men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and they began speaking to the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So there's this Gentile revival that's taking place. And uh, interestingly, it says at the close of that paragraph, and it came about that for an entire year they met, Barnabas and the Apostle Paul, uh, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And so prior to this, uh, the followers of Jesus were called like followers of the way or, you know, disciples of Jesus. And most of the time the term disciple is used of a convert in the Bible, but not always. Sometimes it's used in a broader sense of someone who's just a learner but not necessarily converted. But there was different terms that were used to describe God's people, and it was not Christians. But they saw something different here. And by the way, this is a term that they did not take upon themselves, but the unbelievers in Antioch gave to the church there. They said, this this is a different breed. Uh, This is both Jew and Gentile getting along, loving each other, following Jesus, and they call them Christianos. They're, they're Christians. They're followers of Christ. So, you know, with the time that spanned after that, for the most part, you know, the term is now applied to followers of Christ in general. Uh, it's used in a broad sense of anyone who identifies with Christianity, whether they're what we call nominal Christians or born-again Christians, but really in the truest sense Every true Christian is born again. 
But again, words take their meaning from context and from usage in a culture. So a person today could be called a Christian and not necessarily be born again. Uh, So we have to kind of prop the word up and supercharge it to distinguish uh, nominal Christians, of which there are scores, from true Christians. And so we add adjectivally, we say they're born again Christians. But in the New Testament, you know, if you're a child of God, you're born again. If you're born again and you're a child of God, you're a Christian. Now, you may not be a good Christian in the sense of a close follower of Christ and representing him well. It's like the word ambassador. If you're saved, you're an ambassador for Christ. The question is not if you are an ambassador, but what kind of an ambassador are you, a good one or a poor one? And I think you could say the same of the term Christian. All right, good question. Let's go to uh, okay. the next one. Uh, the next question we have from Texas is, I think, too long for uh, the time we have left, so we'll get that one next week. But um, uh, another listener would uh, like to share with you that they are currently attending a church that uh, has had some heretical teaching. And so uh, they are in the uh, Wilson, North Carolina area, and would like you to maybe recommend uh, another church in or near Wilson. Well, um, what you might want to do is uh, call our Search the Scriptures line and give us your email, and we can send you a little document how to find a good church. Uh, We have a lot of people who come to Community Bible Church um, who are in the military. We lose around 200, sometimes in a big year, as many as 300 military every year. And they're sent all over the world. Some are getting out of the military. They're going back to their hometowns or new cities where they found employment. And so we give them a little handout on how to find a healthy church. And so understanding some broad general principles would be a good starting place uh, as you exercise discernment. Certainly there are some cities where we can say, hey, here's a great church right now that we know is really healthy. Go to this one. I can't do that off the top of my head as it relates to Wilson North Carolina, though, I know people from Wilson, but I can give you a starting place, and we give some hints there in the handout on what a good and healthy church might look like. Well, there's a lot of questions today. Unfortunately, we didn't get to, but if your question was uh, presented, hopefully, God willing, uh, in our next time together on the 13th of September, we will try to answer your question. Hope you have a great day. May the Lord bless you as you seek his kingdom and his righteousness. 